turn with me to Mark chapter 14. As we continue our way through the gospel of Mark, we've come to Mark 14. Nearing the end of this briefest of the gospels, Mark chapter 14. And we'll really only focus on verse 22 tonight. But I want to remind you that last time we were looking at what is sometimes called the Last Supper. And that was a Passover meal, an intimate Passover meal that Jesus shared with his 12 disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem only hours before his death. It was Thursday evening or Friday by Jewish reckoning. And we looked at all the preparations that they were making. It was the first day of unleavened bread we read in verse 12. And so last time we looked from verse 12 to verse 21, all the preparations for the meal. And then that shocking announcement that Jesus made. He said, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And it's in this context that we have the Lord's Supper. So that's what we look at or begin to look at tonight, the Lord's Supper. So I want to read beginning at verse 12 and on to verse 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they said in eight, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, or poured out for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's go again to the Lord and ask for his help and his blessing. Father, we thank you that we can come to you tonight 
gathering as your special people. We thank you that we come in the name of Christ and we thank you that we are now opening up your word and we ask that you would send your spirit and give us light and understanding. Lord, we pray especially that you would nourish our faith tonight, that we would see Jesus, that we would be reminded of him, of his person and his work, that some even would be saved here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There are only two things in the New Testament that are said to belong in a special way, a very special way, to the Lord Jesus. And I imagine if I gave a pop quiz, many of you could come up with those two things. Two things that are uniquely connected to the Lordship of Jesus, and that is the Lord's day. We have that mentioned in Revelation 1.10 by the Apostle John, and the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11.20. And this day and this supper are not merely described as the day of the Lord or the supper of the Lord, but there is an adjective that is used that's only found in these two cases. And that's why I said that it's uniquely connected to his lordship, the day and the supper. This word is a word meaning belonging to the Lord. Today's the Lord's day. We come together, we worship. We've already come together this morning and we've had the Lord's Supper. And now we come tonight to consider this special meal that belongs to the Lord and has been given to us, his church. And we do so as recorded by Mark. But you could also find it in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 30. And Matthew's most like the record in Mark. You can find it in Luke 22. You can find it also in 1 Corinthians 11, even as we read today. That's where we normally read from when we take the Lord's Supper. Now, if you know church history, you know that these few words of Jesus, which I have just read, have given rise to endless discussions, to heated debates, and even ecclesiastical divisions. And I just want to pause as we think about that and think, is this not evidence that we have an enemy, a great enemy, Satan, who desires not only, if possible, to destroy individual Christians, but the church of Christ? Satan will grasp at anything, anything. It doesn't matter if it's trivial or if it's weighty. He will grasp at anything and try to make it a source of division, a battleground among professing believers. So let's not forget that. And to use the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He'll take anything and use it as a source of division among us. He'll sometimes take things that are good, even things that are instituted by God, as we see here, and he'll make them battlegrounds that we will fight and divide over. The two prime examples of this are the two ordinances, sometimes called sacraments, baptism, you know the debates that go on about baptism and will continue to, and then also the Lord's Supper, which we consider tonight. This Lord's Supper, instituted by the Lord Jesus, is very simple 
It involves only two elements, bread and wine, and the words of institution are also very simple, and they're very clear. And yet somehow, they have become a source of schism in the church. Something meant to unite, something meant to strengthen the church has actually often divided and weakened the church. And this was almost true from the beginning. Do you remember what Paul wrote? Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, I can't praise you when you come together to take the Lord's Supper. He says, in fact, it's not the Lord's Supper that you come together to take. The church in Corinth, were, they were coming together. He's speaking about their misconduct, specifically at the Lord's table, which resulted in them coming together, not for the better, but Paul actually says for the worse. This is all in 1 Corinthians 11. There were many, to use Paul's words, taking in an unworthy manner the bread and the cup. And we read that God was even severely ch chastising them. Some were sick. Many, in fact, were sick, and he said, many sleep. And that means many had died as a result of this chastening of the Lord because of their misconduct at the Lord's table. So something meant to strengthen them actually, for many of them, was weakening them and leading to their death. It's in this context that Paul writes about what he received from the Lord regarding the Lord's Supper, the institution of it on the same night in which he was betrayed. So tonight and also in the coming week, maybe the coming weeks, we will look at the institution of the Lord's Supper here in Mark chapter 14. I'm not going to deal with everything that I would deal with if I were preaching from 1 Corinthians 11 or if I were teaching from chapter 30 of our confession. I was looking at it the other day. You could find four lessons that Pastor Jim taught. It's been about five years, but that's the last time we were teaching on chapter 30 of our confession, the 1689 confession. You can find about three and a half hours of teaching on the Lord's Supper. So if you want to do that, you can find it on Sermon Audio. So there's a lot of things that I'm not going to cover because our focus, like Mark, is going to be on the historical facts, the historical record, and then also on the significance in its context, that we understand what Jesus is saying and its significance for us. Of course, we're going to have to touch on various points of division, such as the meaning of is in verse 22, when Jesus says, this is my body. We can't just totally skip over that. We're going to consider what it means for us today to faithfully take the Lord's Supper. But we're going to focus especially on Mark's record and what we learn about the person and the work of Jesus. And also of our great hope as those who by faith are united to Jesus. So here's an outline of, it's really simple and it's just there in the text. But we're going to look at the bread, the cup, and the promise. So you see the bread in verse 22. That's what we're going to look at tonight. That's going to be our sole focus. And then we have in verses 23 and 24, the cup. And then verse 25, a promise. So tonight we look at the bread. The bread here in the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
It takes place, remember, in the context of the Last Supper, this Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Look at the beginning of verse 22. We're told this by Mark. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. It was as they were eating this meal. Remember all the careful preparations for this meal that would have included the killing of the Passover lamb? Remember the shocking announcement that one of them that was eating bread there with Jesus would betray him? And then now we have these words that Jesus took bread in the midst of all of this. Now Jesus, as their master, is the one who is presiding over this meal. It's his meal. That comes out as an emphasis in Mark. They're saying, where do you want us to prepare that you might eat the Passover? And Jesus talks about earnestly desiring, Luke uses that language, to eat this meal with them. It's Jesus' meal. He's presiding over this meal, and they are eating with him. So he's in control of this meal. And what we see here is that he's now directing this meal to something entirely different that would have been a departure from the usual Passover rituals, something entirely new. It begins in a rather ordinary way, though. Jesus taking bread. This would have been the unleavened bread that they had at this Passover meal. He takes bread. Read this in verse 22. Blesses it, breaks it, and he gives it to them. So he takes the bread, blesses, breaks, and he gives it. This is the usual language that we find. In fact, in chapter 6, when we read about the 5,000 plus who were miraculously fed by Jesus, we read, this is in chapter 6, verse 41, and when he, Jesus, had taken the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. It's the same sequence, taking Blessing, breaking, giving. So none of these actions were strange. This is what was ordinarily done, and in particular by the head of the household in Jewish families. So this was normal. Before he distributes the bread, before he breaks it and gives it to them, that's the distribution, he possibly lifts his eyes, but we read that he blesses. He pronounces a blessing. We might say he said grace before he breaks and gives them the bread. He blessed. You know, our word eulogy comes from this word here. He blessed. Literally, he spoke well. And surely this means that he spoke well of God. So he praised God and he thanked God in fact, if you compare Luke 22, the parallel account there, we read that he took bread and he gave thanks. So Luke doesn't say he took bread and he blessed. He uses a different word. He took bread and he gave thanks. That's the word that we see further on down in Mark 14, 23, about the cup, that he gave thanks for the cup. And of course, the contents of the cup. So I don't think we should divide sharply between the blessing and the giving of thanks. Jesus is praising God and he's thanking God. And he might have spoken the traditional Jewish blessing, which would have gone something like this. Blessed are you or praise unto you, O Lord our God, King of the world, 
who makes bread to come forth from the earth. I'll just say it's good for us to do this as well. When we come and we break bread, so to speak, when we have meals, to pause and to bless God, to praise him, to speak well of him, to thank him for providing, and especially fathers, as we have our family together, that we would pray and remember the one who has given us the blessings that we receive. So it's a very biblical thing. If you've ever wondered, why do we pray at meals? Is it just a tradition? No, it's a very biblical thing to do. It's a good thing. So Jesus pronounces this blessing. He thanks God. He might have even in his prayer, we don't know, but he might have prepared them for what he's about to say and even what he's about to do as he goes to the cross to lay down his life for him. But here in particular is the thing that's entirely new. In these few words that Jesus spoke, as he took the bread and he broke it and blessed, we have first a command. That's not unexpected. He tells them to take. Breaks it, take. And eat. Some of you, maybe it just says take if you have the ESV or something. That's because there's some difference in the manuscripts, but it doesn't really matter. He's saying, take it, receive it so that you can eat it. Take, eat. That's not unexpected. But here's the unexpected thing. A declaration that was no doubt shocking to them. He says, this is my body. Very simple. This is my body. This is where we need to talk just a little bit about the debates about that. Very briefly, it would be way too tedious. It wouldn't be helpful to go into much detail about all the disagreements here about these words, and especially that little verb is. What does that mean? Well, Jesus wasn't saying, I hope we all can agree on this, but Jesus wasn't saying that somehow that bread that he was holding out to his disciples had been transformed, the substance of it, into something into his body, a miraculous change. Yes, transubstantiation, transubstantiation. You know that theologians like to come up with big words, but it's a good word, transubstantiation. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that the substance is actually changed into the actual body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And let me just read what the Roman Catholic Church says. This is from the Council of Trent, but they would say this today, affirming what was written in the Council of Trent. They would say that by the consecration of the bread and wine by a priest, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord. And then they say the same thing of the wine and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. That's the Roman Catholic Church. It's not what Jesus means when he says, this is my body. Now, the Protestant reformers, you probably know this, united in rejecting this view of transubstantiation, but they were not all united in their counter-explanation of the words of Jesus, this is my body. Luther regarded the Roman Catholic doctrine as a very serious error 
But he still believed, and this is quoting Luther, that in the supper we eat and take to ourselves Christ's body truly and physically. So we eat and take to ourselves Christ's body truly and physically. The actual body and blood being, quote, in and under the bread and wine. Consubstantiation. Come up with another word there. Consubstantiation is what he would say. And he would say, that's the only thing that does justice to this is my body. I'm not going to take time to try to give any counter argument to these things. I'm just laying out to you some of what's been said. The great Swiss reformer Zwingli understood is to mean signifies. This is, this signifies my body or represents my body. But the important thing here is he denied any real presence of Christ in the supper. So he was teaching that it was only a memorial, no real presence of Christ. And then Calvin had a different view. Calvin spoke of the monster of transubstantiation, and he also spoke of Luther's view as monstrous. So he denied those, but he, he agreed that Christ called the bread his body, and this is again to quote, because it is a symbol of the body of Christ. But Calvin insisted, and I think rightly so, on the real spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. The real spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. This is the view of our confession of faith, which I believe is the biblical view. So the key takeaway here, the executive summary, Christ held out the bread to his disciples as a sign, as a symbol of his body. The bread remains bread. The wine remains wine. There's no change of substance. But the body and blood of Christ, and this is to quote our confession, are spiritually present to the faith of believers in the ordinance. Spiritually present. And if you ask, well, where is any biblical support for this real spiritual presence? Let me give you the key text, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 10, 16. You can just listen. He's speaking very clearly here of the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the fellowship or the sharing of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That's the key text, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. You can write it down if you like, because as you study it in context, this argument becomes even stronger. So there is the support to say that when we take the supper by faith, Christ is really spiritually present. There is a communion that we have with Christ. And then, of course, with one another, all who are united to Christ. When we come and take of these elements by faith, somehow we actually participate or share in the body and blood of Christ by faith. And with all of Christ's benefits to our spiritual nourishment and our growth in grace. This is my body. Much has been said. That's all I'm going to say. This is my body. My burden, though, is to ask 
what do our Lord's actions here and his words here, what do these things tell us about his person and his redeeming work? What is the significance of this? And there's at least two main things that I want us to look at tonight. Two main things that are worthy of our most careful meditation. And certainly as often as we come and we take the bread and we take the cup, we should meditate upon these things, but even throughout all of our lives. And the first is this, that though Jesus is truly God, he was and he is truly man with a real physical body. Jesus spoke of his body, which was and remains, even as he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, remains, his body does, as real and tangible as the bread we take and eat. I can't explain that mystery to you, but that's what the Bible teaches. He's God and man, two persons, it's a mystery. Sorry, two natures, delete that last line, two natures united in one person forever. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a mystery. You can't wrap your mind around it. It's the mystery of the incarnation. That the Son of God, the eternal word, as John says in John 1, through whom all things were created, that he would take on flesh, become a man, and dwell among us. John 1.14. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And since he's fully God and he's fully man, he's the perfect mediator between God and and man, the only mediator and the perfect mediator. You know Philippians chapter 2, where we read that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. In short, God became man. He partook of real human flesh and blood. He had a body. He has a body. Now, why did he do that? What was the purpose? Why would God become man, the creator of all things, become a weak man, a perfect man, a sinless man, but weak, just like me and you? Luke twenty-two nineteen, the institution there. Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. That, in a nutshell, is the why. This is my body given for you. It's for sinners that God became man, took a real body. 1 Corinthians eleven four. this is my body, which is broken for you. And you could look at Mark 14, 24. Just look down a little bit in our text, speaking of the cup and the wine. That same language is used. It's for us. It is for sinners that this happened, that God sent his son, 
that, that the eternal Son of God became man for sinners. So he took to himself a true body so that he could then give up that body. He could lay that body down so that it could be put to death for us and for many, many more sinners. Pastor Jim mentioned Hebrews 10 this morning, where we read that a body was prepared for the Son of God so that he could be obedient to the point of death. He didn't come as an angel. He came as a man. A body was prepared for him so that he could be obedient to the point of death so that sinners could be made saints. Hebrews 10.10, again, as we read this morning, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, we have been sanctified. Sinners become saints, but he had to have a body in order to offer himself as a sacrifice. I know this is simple, but it's profound, and we need to meditate on it. You could compare Hebrews 2.14, that he shared in our flesh and blood. And here's the reason that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So if he was going to destroy the devil, he had to take on a real human body. He had to come into this world as a man. And we are reminded of that when we think of these words. This is my body. Who of us would have ever dreamed up this plan of salvation? That God would become one of us in order to die for us, unworthy sinners, so that he could be with us forever. We could have peace with him, joy and everlasting life. We would never dream up this plan of salvation. This is according to the infinite wisdom of God. And the love of God, which is beyond comprehension. That he would take a body and allow that body to be bruised and beaten and wounded. And then to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. A perfect final sacrifice for sins. No more sacrifices. So as often as you take the bread, remember the body of Jesus broken and given for you. As you take it. Think about it. Take it by faith as you chew. Think about it. The body of Jesus. But there's a second thing here. And giving his disciples bread to eat as the symbol of his body, he was, he was communicating something very simple but very deep, a deep truth about who he is and about what he came to do. And it's simply that he is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the true bread from heaven, sent from the Father in order to give life, eternal life. So that's it. It's, it's simple. But the bread reminds us, teaches us, he is the bread of life. And he gives life to this dying world to give the only food which truly satisfies, and which endures to everlasting life. Have you ever asked why bread? I don't think that I had until I was studying this a little bit, a little bit more. Why bread? And not, for example, some of the roasted lamb that they would have had there. 
Say, this is my body. He's the lamb of God. But why bread? Well, for one, Jesus would put an end to animal sacrifices. But if we had to have roasted lamb up here, it just wouldn't. He was putting an end to animal sacrifices. He's the final Passover sacrifice, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But bread is a powerful symbol for life. In a special way, it is a symbol of life. For most of human history, even to this day, some form of bread has been essential for life, for the sustaining of life. So the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is so essential and such a powerful, clear symbol for that which sustains us and sustains life that Jesus speaks of all food as simply bread, and we find that elsewhere in the scriptures. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. But man lives by bread. We need bread. If we don't eat, of course, we would die. If we don't drink, we would die. Jesus also uses the imagery of drinking, but here it's bread. So in giving bread, he gives a universal symbol of life, of physical sustenance, in order to raise our thoughts higher to the spiritual life, the eternal life that he alone gives to those who feed upon him by faith. So he wants to elevate us with something so simple and mundane and ordinary to raise our thoughts by faith, to feed upon him. Just as man feeds on bread, man is invited. He's urged to feed upon the bread of life. Jesus himself, that he should live and not die. Every man, woman, boy, girl. Jesus says, come feed on me if you want to live. And I want us to hear the words of Jesus tonight, because I could go on and on, but I want you to hear those familiar words in John chapter 6. Because when you take the bread in the supper, this is a text that ought to come to mind for your meditation, sometimes called the bread of life discourse. And I'm going to read John 6, 26 to 59, you can turn there or you can just listen. But these are the words of our Lord as he's explaining the significance of bread and how he is the bread of life. And remember, he's just fed the 5,000 and people are looking for him. It's the next day. And they finally find him, and that's where we pick up in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Of course, he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? This is just after he fed the 5,000. What sign will you show us 
that we might believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. As a living father sent me, and I live because of the father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Again and again, our Lord is repeating some things. Bread, life, come down from heaven, given for you. 
again and again, and the message is clear, and that's what we need to understand when Jesus holds out the bread and says, take, this is my body. Let me ask you, as we read these things, you've heard these words, have you received and eaten this bread? Have you received freely and eaten by faith this bread from heaven? The bread that endures to eternal life, says Jesus. Have you taken in hand the Son of God? And have you by faith eaten to the full and to your eternal satisfaction? It's only this bread, the bread of life, that can truly and completely and forever satisfy. You know that people go their entire life seeking this and that and this, seeking something to satisfy them, the hunger of their longing soul. People feel empty. People are hopeless. You've probably seen that suicide rates are up. People are looking for satisfaction and meaning and hope, and they're looking in the wrong place, and the Lord Jesus is saying, here is where to find it in me. I give you freely the bread of life. Have you taken what Jesus freely gives himself? Many people live without any real hope or satisfaction. I was thinking about this. Some of you who keep up with things, Texas Rangers won the World Series. That's a baseball team, Major League Baseball team. I'm from Oklahoma, so that was the closest thing to our team. Many people for decades have longed for and hoped for this day that the Rangers would win the World Series. No doubt thinking, if that would happen, I would be so satisfied. There might even be some people that say, I can die. I've seen the Rangers win the World Series. (laughs) You know it. The day has come. And are they satisfied? They might be happy right now, but do they have true and lasting joy and satisfaction in something that is enduring? They don't. It's found in Jesus. So there's an invitation here, and any time the supper is distributed, as you heard today, there's an invitation. Any of you here who have not come to Christ by faith, as you see the elements being distributed, and maybe you think it's strange, But don't check out. It is an invitation to you from the Lord of heaven and earth to come and to feast and to satisfy your soul forever. And the words of Isaiah 55 came to my mind, an earnest plea where we read there, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, And without price, freely, it's of grace. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, bend your ear, and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Well, those of us who have eaten, who have taken, who have received and feasted upon this bread 
of heaven by faith. Do we not know a true and lasting satisfaction? Do we not know that our souls are filled? And have you not found in Christ all that you truly need and want? Now, I know, I know that we can sometimes be overcome by desires for other things. We can be deceived. But if you've come to Christ, have you not found in him all that you need, a true satisfaction? Your soul is filled. Jesus calls us to turn again to him tonight and to be filled as we read these simple words, as he took that bread, blessed, broke, he gave it, and he said, this is my body. He's inviting us again to turn to him. He is our life. He and he alone is the one who satisfies us. The bread of life, he fills our souls, gives us eternal life and joy and peace. So tonight, let your soul delight itself afresh in this abundance in Christ. Feast on Christ by faith. And not only for your spiritual nourishment, yes, for that. Pray that we would all be nourished today. And not only for your growth and grace, but also to your greater enjoyment of your salvation in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these moments to spend in your word. We thank you that your words are life-giving. They point us to Christ, who is our life. And we thank you that you have revealed to us the beauty and the perfection of Christ. Even tonight, all of this day, that we have considered his person and his work. We have considered how he laid down his life for us, and we thank you. Thank you for these simple words and this simple ordinance where Jesus holds out to us, gives to us bread, and says, this is my body and the cup. And how we remember Christ and truly commune with him. We're thankful for this. Give us understanding Nourish our faith and strengthen us. And pray, Lord, that we more and more would be weaned off of the things of this world and find Christ to be truly our chief desire. He alone is all satisfying. Pray that some here, hearing these words, hearing even the words of Christ and declaring that he is the bread of life and everyone who comes to him will have everlasting life. Pray that those words would penetrate to their souls, that you would draw them to Christ. You will by no means cast them out. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.